Uh, I preached a couple weeks ago on something that I called the disruption. Uh, Sean and Steph followed up on that uh, last week with the, the great disruption. So I need to one-up that, and I'm going with the greatest disruption. Okay? There is no beating that. I skipped right over the greater disruption. I'll think of something. I'm sure. <clears throat> um, and part of that was the supremacy of Christ over all things is where we should start every message and every thought and everything we ever do in the church because that's literally at the center of everything and it's the purpose for all things, right? God's on a mission to fill the entire earth with his own glory. And the scriptures tell us that as we lift Christ up, the whole world will be drawn to him. It's an inescapable gravitational vortex of truth, light, and beauty that every soul desires. When he's lifted up, all men will be drawn to him. <clears throat> and when that happens, Jesus takes it all, and it tells us at the very end he's going to literally hand it back to the Father. And we are on that mission with Jesus. Right? We're on this mission to be able to give Jesus what he's looking for, which is the world, right? For the whole earth to be filled with his glory so that he can turn around and give it back to the Father. You have no other reason to exist beyond that at this point. Do you understand? If you did, you'd be in heaven already. At least those of us who are walking with Jesus right now if we didn't have more to do here, if we didn't have a very specific purpose and mission for being here, we wouldn't be here. Does that make sense to everybody? I hope it makes really good sense because it should then leave a lot of us with the sense of, oh, I thought I was just killing time till heaven. And that seems funny, except it's literally what sits in the thoughts of almost everybody at one point or another. You don't realize that you were, you were literally baptized into the household of God for a purpose, a very short, short window to accomplish this thing. <clears throat> one of my favorite quotes, I think I've said it like at least in 70% of my messages, is this, that we will have all of eternity to celebrate our victories, but only a few short hours before the dawn in which to win them. Think about that. That's like prioritizing when you hear that. It like just shifts. You're like, this is the truth, and it's unshakable, that we have just this short, tiny window to win whatever victories we're going to celebrate for eternity. That's not a lot. It's not a lot of time. And as you get older, you realize you have even less time Anyway, I want to start by reading a scripture, because I want to talk a lot about, about this discipleship following up on what I talked about last time. I left off with the, what does it mean to be a disciple? What does this even look like? How do you make disciples if you've never been discipled? How do you even know if you've been discipled? And so there's not, not going to be the usual, you know, 15 scriptures here, but I want to start with this core part. It's Luke 14. If you're going to start with the scripture, let it be Jesus. Luke 14, 26 to 35, I'm going to read it. Jesus had just... Okay. Sorry. I need glasses. 
I thought it was 26, it was 20, and it said something about a wedding, and I was like, I wrote the wrong verse. <laughs> this is Jesus just left a, a dinner, a banquet dinner with a Pharisee where he had done a lot of cool stuff, healed a person, you know, rebuked them for thinking it was weird to heal someone on the Sabbath. And now he's walking from that place to his next destination, and a large crowd started gathering because Jesus was the hottest thing on the market at this time in his ministry. He was doing things no one had ever seen or heard of, and everyone would just wait around for him to come out of whatever building he was in or house at the time and begin to follow him. And just large crowds constantly followed him around. And this is what he says to this large crowd. He says, if anyone comes to me, right? Think I want. This is what I always try to do when I'm reading the scripture, and I really encourage everyone to always do it all the time. But when I'm preaching, I want to make sure you understand what I'm understanding so that the point doesn't go here and that you get it, is that Jesus had constant crowds coming to him constantly, constantly, constantly. Just like anyone would if you had the reputation of being, being able to heal just anyone you wanted at a word. And this is what Jesus did. Many times he'd go to whole places and heal everyone who was sick there. He's raising the dead. He's healing the blind, the deaf, the dumb, the people who are lame and can't walk. He's healing. Paralyzed people are walking away, getting, going back to their jobs, providing for their families again. This is what Jesus did. This was the reputation he had. And so, of course, tons of people followed him. Guess why they were following him? Interactive time. Throw, throw some guesses. Yeah, they wanted to get healed. Is that a really terrible motive for following someone? No. It's literally why you go to a hospital, right? And then you didn't hurt the hospital's feelings. <clears throat> so it's not wrong to, to follow, pursue Jesus because you want healing. But it just makes you a follower. It doesn't make you a disciple. This is a big difference. It's a biblical difference. It's a critical difference. Do you understand? It makes you a follower, and that's not bad. But it doesn't make you a disciple. It just makes you a consumer. And again, you're trying to consume something that's not bad. It's not bad to want healing. It's not bad to want to be made right. It's not bad to not want to hurt. It's not bad to want a better life. <clears throat> but to be very, very, very clear, it doesn't make you a disciple. It's not bad to want community. It's not bad to want family and people you can talk to and people you can confide in and people you can feel loved by. None of that is bad. It's all good things as far as we define good, but it doesn't make you a disciple. That's got to be very, very clear. And I'm going to read to you what Jesus said to the large crowds that were continuously following him. This is what he says. So he turned... He said, now great crowds were traveling with him, traveling with him wherever he went. So he turned and said to them, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother, I'm going to stop there because what I want you to do is picture each relationship he describes in your mind, the person by name, so that it doesn't just scoot over your head as some ancient Far Eastern Hebrew thought thing that doesn't apply to modern day American people. Think of your father's name. Think of your mother's name. Think of their face. 
And if you, you know, you have bad relationships with you and you hate your mother and father, think of someone you've loved as a father or as a mother, someone you share the same loyalty or affection towards. <clears throat> Jesus said to them, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, He cannot be my disciple. He didn't say he cannot keep following me. He didn't say he cannot be a follower. He didn't say I won't even bless you. He didn't say that. He didn't say I won't bless you if you don't hate your mother, father. But he said you cannot be my disciple. You cannot be my student. You cannot be my pupil. You cannot be trained by me and learn to be like me. You cannot be my apprentice, my Padawan, whatever term fits best for you. You cannot be that to me if these relationships come before me in any way, shape, or form. And he used the word hate. It's a very strong word. Now in Jewish language, because they dealt with imagery, this meant compare, right? He didn't say hate like we understand. You have to turn around and have vile hatred. Of course not. The Bible literally says, do not hate your brother. Love even your enemy. So Jesus isn't saying to hate your mother and father the way you're currently understanding it. But what it meant was a strong decision of loyalty towards the one you love versus the one you hate. When, When Jacob was born, He had an older brother named Esau. They were twins, and they were born at the same time. And God says this of Esau and Jacob. He said, Esau I have hated, but Jacob I have loved. Before they were even born. What this was, God was saying, I have chosen Jacob, the younger son, over Esau, the older son, as you would have expected. Right? The older son is always the one in Jewish tradition that gets the the double portion and gets the inheritance passed on, the one that's chosen, the firstborn. And God was breaking the mold and saying, no, no, listen, Jacob I've loved, Esau I've hated. It was a decision thing, and Jesus is using the same language here. He's saying, guys, if in the face of having to decide where your loyalty, affection, and desire loves lies between your father and me, your mother and me, your wife and me, your children and me, your brother or sister or friends or even yourself or me, and your affection and loyalty isn't with me, then you cannot be my disciple. I'm not, I'm not uh, exaggerating this in any way, shape, or form. It's in your Bible, too. You can read it. These are his exact words, and he didn't say it just this once. It is a very serious and massively disrupting statement if you allow it to do that. Do you understand? It might sound like a small thing, but what Devin shared about the video game and the strong pull, guys, that has shipwrecked more people than not. And whatever the strong desire is, because it's so strong, you will work to rationalize with all your strength why it's okay, why it doesn't have to go, why it's allowed to share space, why Jesus just needs to push over a little bit on the throne to make room for it. You're not kicking Jesus off the throne. You just, it needs, there needs to be room. 
You need to be balanced. And you allow it to stay, and you allow it to keep its foothold, and what you do is you are declaring to Jesus, I have not made a decision yet on who I love and hate. This thing is too precious to me. So many little things, right? Like right now, if we just stopped and did a survey and said, hey, take five minutes and write down these things in your life that you feel that way, I guarantee you the majority of us could write more than one thing that we have not let go of, or that if you were asked to let go of, you would have a really, really hard time doing. And you're like, yeah, but mother, father, wife, children, that's neglect. <sighs> Does anyone here know anyone personally who is part of the military during any type of wartime? Okay. How about not during wartime? Anyone here out of those people know anyone who went AWOL and left the military illegally and is now in prison for it? People don't do that typically. Serious consequences for doing that. When you're in the military, you have made your decision and they will tell you that. It's wartime. It's time to deploy. Uh, I'd love to come and help, guys, but it's my wife's birthday, and she'd be really upset if I wasn't there. It's my children's championship football game, guys. Listen, I'll catch up. I'll, I'll take the next bomber over to Afghanistan and catch you guys a little bit later. Don't wait up for me. Such silly thoughts. Yet people have done that. People have left their family for years with no ability to come back and see them because of patriotism, because of loyalty to their nation and because of the cause that they had already committed their life to. Did they neglect their family? Did they hate their family? Nope. There was just a cause that they had committed to that was worth the sacrifice? Did they stop loving their family? Did they stop doing everything they could to take care of their family? Nope. They didn't do that. Most of these guys sent every penny the military paid them back home to take care of them, had families set up to help while they were gone. They did everything in their power except abandon their commission and their cause. then we think it's just so extreme for Jesus to make a statement like this and for him to expect us to do things that, that break our, our comfort zone or our mold or our paradigm. And it's like, here's the Christian church, just like on life support here, because no one can go to mission because there's a birthday coming up. And no one can stay committed to the cause because there's anniversaries and there's work to be done. There's clients to take care of. There's bills to be paid. And Jesus is saying, you cannot be my disciple. I want to read this thing from a blog. I was going to read it the last time I preached and totally forgot. <laughs> it's from a young woman who does a blog. And she said, on the day of my baptism, my father stood at the back of the church hung over, or quite possibly drunk even at that early hour, 
and shouted, Hooray for Sarah! As I came up out of the water. I was eight years old. That's how my mother remembers it. My memories are less dramatic. The heavy white robe I wore that was more like a thick doctor's coat than anything resembling the drapery garb of the flannel graph version of Jesus and his disciples I knew from Sunday school. Stepping down into the chlorinated blue water of the baptismal, holding on to the solid forearm of my pastor as I followed his instructions, bend your knees, lean back, close your eyes, try to relax. We all know what that's like in our round hut tub baptismal, right? Some of us are too tall for it. (laughs) Thank God for strong ACLs. And she says, I did it because I'd seen other people at church do it. I did it for my mom, for my Sunday school teacher, and also because I truly believed at eight that I was ready to make a public declaration of my faith. That's how I understood baptism. You believed in Jesus, and then you proved it. I'm sure my father saw it as something even simpler, his youngest daughter mimicking her mother. What he didn't realize, what I would only come to grasp years later, was that he was witnessing a transfer of allegiance. When I came up out of the water, soaked and relieved to have not gotten any water up my nose, I was a member of a different family the daughter of a different father. There's a scene in the Gospel of Matthew. Jesus is talking to a crowd. The topics are difficult and complex. And he says, if you don't hate your father, mother, brother, sisters, yes, even your own life, you cannot be my disciple. He says it's in two versions, it's in there. In either version, the point is made. When you follow Jesus, everything changes, including, and perhaps especially, the strongest, most natural ties a creature can have. I'm going to read that again. In either version of the, the statement Jesus makes, in Luke or Matthew, the point is made. When you follow Jesus, everything changes including and perhaps especially the strongest, most natural ties a creature can have. This notion of the church, fellow believers, as my family, was ingrained early. No small part of that was a function of time and place. I grew up in San Francisco in the 70s, the cradle of the Jesus movement. The Bay Area was full of orphan flower children, hippies disillusioned by the drug and free life, free love scene that had failed them, but still seeking the ideals of community that the 60s had provided. Said they were surrounded with the ideals of peace, love, and understanding. Doing the will of the Father was the part we perhaps paid less attention to. Think about that. She said she grew up in the 70s, peace, love, understanding the hippies, like love the community, love loving each other. Says, but doing the will of the Father was the part we perhaps paid less attention to. And maybe Luke's harsh, hard to read version is more helpful in the end, where he says, hating or rejecting anything, anyone who ends up coming before following Jesus is the only way to avoid the problems that come with the almost idolatrous worship of the community. She says a lot of strong things in there, and I think every single one of them is accurate. 
But I love the idea of her when she came up. She said, what my drunk father in the back was recognizing was a shift in allegiance. That I was now the daughter of a different father. These are statements that need to disrupt the way you think right now. And they need to disrupt the way you live right now. And they need to disrupt the way you focus right now. They need to disrupt where you place your loyalty right now. The best description of loyalty that I've heard was affectionate commitment. Who are you loyal to? Where is your affectionate commitment to? This is a big deal, especially for you young couples out there, married, unmarried, engaged. I don't care what stage you're in. Do you understand right now you set the foundation for what your relationship will be? Right now. If Jesus put it on your heart or in your mind or in the heart to minds of the leaders around you who have demonstrated their care and love and concern for you, that this relationship was not right for you to be in at this time, Where does your allegiance lie? Your marriage depends on that answer, I promise you, from experience and many, many counseling sessions with people who didn't have this understood. Where does your allegiance lie? You know how you can check? Find out where your treasure is. Stop and take an assessment and say, what is the treasure in my life? What are the treasures in my life? What are the things I value most when I wake up? What are my motivations? What am I doing this for? That's your treasure. Those are the things you treasure. That is where your allegiance is. That's where your heart is. And you need to find out if that's Jesus or not. You need to find out if that's your father, your mother, your wife, your girlfriend, your fiance, your brother, your sister, your best friend, and if it's any of those, they need to die in your heart or else you cannot and are not a disciple of Christ. It's literally what Jesus said. He tells truth. All of it. Nothing but it. We have to be disrupted by this or you will just take your very nice stroll of a life right over to the edge and at the very end wake up to this shocking reality that you were never a disciple of Christ. That you may have even cast out demons in his name. You may have even prayed for a few people and seen them get healed in his name. And you get to Jesus and he's like, you weren't one of my disciples. Were you, were you one of the people in the crowd? <clears throat> Did I heal you at some point? I don't know you. Man, it seems harsh. It's because it is. Because it's like life and death. It's eternity. So you say harsh things to help people realize, like, eternity's on the line. And that's what Jesus does. It's a reminder, guys, that without vision, people cast off restraint and they do their own thing. This is one of the things I established a couple weeks ago in my message. Vision gives pain its purpose. It is painful to let people who your allegiance has been to previously shift to literally say, I choose Jesus. I choose his cause, his call, his mission, his purpose, his entire reason over this. 
I would love to spend every day, all day with all of you, but there is a cause that is greater than my own desires that I must live for, for my good, for your good, for the good of the world, and for the glory of Jesus. And that cause is worth more than just dying for. That cause is worth sacrificing more. That cause is worth me putting my life up on the altar and say, here is my living sacrifice to you, God. Every day I sacrifice the things I want to do, which is to sit with my family and enjoy them and my friends and, and to sit and cuddle on the couch and watch shows with them and not go to work. That would be great, right? And to just be able to enjoy time, go out on great dates every weekend and do these things. I promise God, I am going to try to make time to do all those things because they're not bad things, but I must sacrifice my desires until they are your desires. Because there is a cause greater than that. My family is so important to Jesus. And therefore to me. And they are a very high priority in my life. But there is a cause greater than my family that I have been called to give my life to. They are an integral part of it. But if they are my cause, I've missed it. The Lord happily sends us as sheep to the slaughter every day for the greater cause that he is on. How much more so are we to then take everything that's precious to us and bring it with us on this mission for this cause? What are you showing your family? That they're the most important thing in your life? Is that what they're getting? Because if so, then your allegiance is off and so is theirs now. If your children don't see a life of sacrifice lived for a cause greater than yourself, a mission worth dying for, an eternal cause that Christ is on, which is to allow him to give everything back to the Father, it's completed, it's done. Then they're not seeing it. Do they see you living a life of discipleship to Christ and to his church and to others every day of your life, daily? Do they see you coming to the gathering of the saints on a Sunday morning to worship the Father and to encourage each other as something you find great joy and fulfillment and satisfaction in? Or is it your church tax? Is it your one day out of the week that you have to make sure you set aside to the Lord for at least a few hours? Do you wonder why your kids might not think church is really cool or fun or a valuable thing? Why you have to drag them around? Why when it's time to pray or listen to the word or read the Bible or serve? <sighs> Fine, how long? I got shows to watch. <clears throat> I know that's hard. I'm just saying this is the truth. This is the truth. <clears throat> Without vision, none of us will do it, though. <clears throat> Remember what I said. John Wesley said, the church will change the world. That's what he said. But he said, the church changes the world not by making converts, but by making disciples. We're on a world-changing mission because that's what Jesus is doing. And we're part of that. And our life is forfeit for any other cause other than that. And if he blesses you with the ability to, to enjoy some things along the way, then you worship your guts out for such generosity and grace from your master. 
and you bless him and you thank him and you demonstrate that gratitude. <clears throat> so if we're going to change the world, we've got to make disciples. Here's the practical side of things, guys. It's really hard to make disciples if you've never been a disciple. So what's a disciple? I want to share some thoughts I shared. Recently, I was talking to somebody I'm in a relationship with, and uh, they asked me, it was a conversation for clarity and questioning, they said, hey, am I your disciple? And um, when I heard the question, uh, it was not one I'm not unfamiliar with, but I wanted to give the person the time and energy and effort to really answer it well. <clears throat> and so I thought it through, and I said, well, honestly, no. I don't think you're a disciple. I don't view you as a disciple right now. Um, but this is why. And this is not talking about disciple of Jesus, okay? He asked about me. But I want to make this point clear, too, because this is, the Bible's really clear on this principle of the natural and then the spiritual. And the reason why God has birthed us into natural families is because we have to first understand the principles and truth and love and care of family in the natural before we could ever understand it in the supernatural. In 1 John, I think it's 1 John. My head's a little cloudy. 1 John, he says... How can you say you love God and hate your brother? Right? He says, how can you say that you love God who you can't see, but then that you hate your brother who you can see? He says, first go and love your brother who you can see. Then you will be able to come and love your God who you can't see. That's the principle. Right? In another place in maybe 1 Corinthians, um, like 15 around there, He says the same thing. Paul says, listen, first comes the natural, then the spiritual. God has given us the natural realm. It is a good and holy creation. It has been defiled and corrupted, and God is restoring and redeeming that. That's what he's doing. But the natural is not sinful, and then the spiritual is holy. Right? That's called Gnosticism. That's not what we're here for. Everything is holy when God touches it. But in the natural, he has given us the opportunity to learn these principles that we then apply in a very real way to the spiritual reality that we're not so easily engaged in. <clears throat> so God is saying, if you're going to say you love me, it means nothing if you're not demonstrating that love to the people around you that you can actually see. So you can't say I'm a disciple of Christ when you're not a disciple to anyone else in the church that God has commanded us to serve and submit to. Do you understand? This is the principle. Now, of course, I'm not saying black and white, you were born on an island and you're the only person who's, you've ever met, you've never met another human being, you can't be a disciple. Of course you can. Jesus will find a supernatural way to introduce you to himself and make you a disciple. But guess what? For the majority of us, we know at least one other person. And Jesus says, I expect you to love that one other person you know if you're going to say you love me. And that's the demonstration. 
here's the disruption. You have to actually do this stuff. You can't just say it in your head and in a private prayer closet, say, I love you, Lord, you're awesome, I love you, you're the best, and then walk outside and rail on your children. You can't go into your prayer closet and say, I'm a holy, righteous person, and then come out and just attack your wife and your friends. You don't get to do that. So you can't say, I'm a disciple of of Jesus and of the Father. This is me. And you come around and you just live according to your own counsel and your own ways. I could do a whole series of teachings on the Scripture's teachings of how every one of us is commanded to submit to somebody somewhere. Everyone. None of us are where the buck stops. Every one of us who has any type of authority in any way, shape, or form is delegated authority. None of you are the source of your own authority. That's just the truth. There's one source. It's the Father, and he delegates it as he sees fit. And in the same way, (coughs) in the same way, you can't turn around and tell yourself you're a disciple if you've never been a disciple. Church is a joyous place. Good job, Wells. (laughs) Listen, I'm saying this like, this isn't just Steve talking. Let me quote Paul, who said this to an entire church and to the entire capital C church, but literally wrote it to a church and said, follow me as I follow Christ. What? You arrogant, pompous, Self-fulfilled man, how dare you tell people to follow you instead of telling them to follow Christ? Can you believe this guy? Can you believe? He had the option to tell them to follow him or follow Christ, and he said, follow me. Somebody has a very high view of himself, don't you think? Or maybe there's something else going on. What do you think? He told them to follow him as he follows Christ because it was the natural living, breathing interaction and example that they could interact with to demonstrate what they do for Christ. This is why Christ's greatest command was to, as you have been loved, love others. That was his greatest command. His greatest command wasn't, love me. It wasn't. When they called and when they challenged him, they said, hey, what's the greatest command? He says, you've heard it said, all these things. Love God, love others. And then Jesus says, here's my command to you. As you have been loved, love others. That's it. That's all he said. You're also free to look that one up too. It's in the Bible. So, when I was talking to this person, hope that establishes like that it's biblical and good and right for us to make disciples, okay, <laughs> as we follow Christ. The minute you stop following Christ, you disqualify yourself from any type of discipleship. <clears throat> I responded to him. I said, I don't. I don't consider you a disciple, but let me explain. I said, you're someone in my life that I love, that I care about, <clears throat> that I've invested in and will continue investing in. But I think it's more of a mentor relationship. And let me explain the difference. 
I said, to me, there's, within the church, we see these kind of three, three, three expressions, right? One, which I think, like, would start with counseling. And counseling is usually someone has a specific need, and you go to someone that is specifically skilled to, to counsel you in it. You get counsel, you resolve your issue, and you move on. There's not a lot of times where ongoing relationship gets established that way. Sometimes it does, of course. Through anything, it can. But the purpose of counseling is you're pursuing help for a specific thing until you've made it uh, resolved or grown from it or whatever it is you're after. <coughs> then there's mentoring. Mentoring in most experiences, right, is someone needs help. They need help. They need guidance in their life, usually in general, and then specific things might touch down. But you're helping them get established in their life. You're helping them get over issues. You're helping them work through problems. You are mentoring them towards uh, maybe a, a direction that you, you think they need to go in. But it's usually about the person. Right? It's about the person you're mentoring. It's like, okay, what do they need? How do we help them? How do we get them from here to there? This is, this is good. Uh, and it's good. It's a good thing. Like, mentoring is great. We encourage mentoring. We assign mentors. Like, it's valuable. <clears throat> but it's usually still life, general. It's these people giving to the people they're counseling or mentoring. <clears throat> Discipleship, to me, when making disciples is the other way around. A disciple is someone who is hungry to learn, to grow, to become a pupil, to become an apprentice. Someone who wants to be like the person they're being discipled by. They have set a target and they've said, I must become like them. I must be trained and learn from them. I must serve this person for this purpose and this cause. It is a reverse on the other two. 99% of the time, you don't have people saying, who can I counsel? Who needs counseling? Let's see. Oh, they look like they need counseling. I'm going to go to them. Would you guys like to be counseled by me? <clears throat> no. It's the people who need counseling. They come, and they're like, okay, thank you. Mentoring, same thing. A lot of times, we will look for people who need to be mentored, right, in the church. That's what we do. We want to help them. But discipleship is a call, okay? It's an offer to join a mission, to grow, to be equipped, to be trained, to learn how to be like me as I follow Christ. And a disciple looks very different from these other things because a disciple is not living about themselves. They are living to serve a person. They are living to learn, to be equipped, to grow, to become like a person. And this is what Paul said, follow me as I follow Christ. This is what Jesus did. Follow me and I will show you the Father. This is what he did with his apostles. So we have these three different levels. Counseling, mentoring, and then discipling. And discipling is what changes the world. When you make disciples, people who are saying, I'm committed to the cause of Christ. What do I have to do to be equipped and to do this, to be trained and to run in? These people want to be like their master. That's what discipleship is. You're fully committed. Your life changes. This is why the, the, the Jewish people considered a high blessing to say this phrase. This is what they said to him. They said, may you be covered in the dust of the feet of your rabbi. 
That is a big deal. It's a big statement. Because it was a high honor to be called by a rabbi to become like them. Just to give you a quick insight, this is how the, the Jewish school system grew in the phases, right? After you hit 12 years old, that was it. Unless you got promoted to the big time, meaning to become a disciple of one of the rabbis, you then left at 12 years old. You were fully equipped as a, an adult there for the general studies of the Torah and Scripture. They then said, go and learn the trade of your father. In other words, you're not going any further on this education system to become a rabbi or teacher or Pharisee. You've reached your cap of potential. Now go and become a fisherman like your dad or go and become a builder like your dad or whatever. It's like, go learn the trade of your father. But the ones that got picked to follow, this was a high honor. It's like getting a scholarship to Harvard or some major university. You get accepted and they say, come, follow me. That was their official statement. <clears throat> and they would. They would come and follow that person. And then the blessing was, may you be covered in the dust of the feet of your rabbi. Because whoever followed closest, closest was the honor person. Everyone's always fighting for, for the front. A rabbi would usually have a small school of people following him. And they'd serve him. And they'd learn from him. They'd listen to all his teachings. And then afterwards, they get to ask him questions. And... But they would walk closely behind them, carrying his stuff, helping him with everything they had for the trip, the travel, and they'd be covered. And the person in the front was usually the one that was being honored, right? It was a positional thing. Jesus recognizes this too later on with the Pharisees saying, like in one of the parables, hey, these people come and they want to seat, sit in the best places because in a culture of honor, you want the honor. <clears throat> and the blessing was, may you be covered in the dust, the feet of your rabbi. <clears throat> That's where they expected the most honored students, disciples, apprentices to be. Close, serving. We don't have that understanding here. We just don't. We just so too easily think discipleship is here, read a book, take a class, be here on Sunday before church for our discipleship class, and help out at the church, wherever you can. Do some cameras, do some sound, do some... Uh, yard work, when we have work days, show up. All those things are needed, valuable. <clears throat> it's not discipleship. <clears throat> Here's what discipleship looks practically. If you're here at the crossing, you're like, I've never been discipled. I want to be discipled. Two things. <clears throat> the church makes disciples. I want you to understand this. <clears throat> The church makes disciples. And this is what I was explaining to the person I was talking to. I said, I consider us a mentoring relationship because I'm trying to help you get established in your life and work through stuff and get to a place where, where you get your stuff under control. And then when you're stabilized, when that becomes part of the rhythm of your life and it's normal and you got it under control, and you're like, I'm ready to carry some burdens for others now. Then we can talk about discipleship. I said, but if, if you were a disciple of mine right now, it would probably overwhelm you. It would, it would really, you'd, you'd be crushed by the weight of the expectations of what it means to be a disciple. Said so you would be in Antioch, you would be leading first principles cohorts, you would be serving everywhere you could. Your life would be incredibly busy. Like you would be go, 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 go. I said you wouldn't have time to deal with the stuff you're dealing with right now. <coughs> I said a lot of the ideas and plans you have, Put on the back burner because when you become a disciple, that's your priority. And that's what Christ expected. Read it. 
So as those of us who have never been discipled, and yet you're here and you're feeling the call to make disciples, how do you do that? Well, God has established a church to make disciples. It is not a one-on-one venture. I know that a lot of times discipleship, especially in America, gets poised as this one-on-one thing. Well, who's the Paul to my Timothy? Who's the Elijah to my Elisha? Who's the Moses to my Joshua? Right? Who's the, the Ruth to my Naomi? All the big discipleship examples we see in Scripture. But in the New Testament, Paul makes it clear. Jesus' commission makes it clear. As you are going... Make disciples, baptize them into the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, meaning the family of God, the church, and then teach them to obey everything I've taught you. Now, if the church is a family, and the family is the model for the church, what's better, to have a husband and a wife, or just a husband or just a wife for the children? It's a tough question. I like to ask the tough questions. Obviously, it's better. Is it wrong? Is a single parent home wrong? No. A single parent can do an amazing job, can do a great job, but no matter what they do, whether it's the father or the mother, the children are going to be deficient in some things. It's just the nature of it. So, is it wrong to have a child raised in a single family home? No. Is it better for them to be raised in a two-parent home? Yes. But what if they were raised in an extended family? What if they were raised being influenced and trained by the father, by the mother, and also by the grandfather and the grandmother and the other grandfather and the other grandmother and the aunts and the uncles and the older siblings and the friends of the family that were all on the same mission together, living the same life, all being disciples of Christ together, and now this person becomes the most well-rounded and equipped possible. And that is the vision of the church. It's the vision of the church. But we need first a church who has eyes to think that way, to see and to think and to act this way, that when new young people come into the church, they're thinking, hey, that's a new son or daughter in the family. They need to know who I am. I'm a father or a mother in the house. I'm an aunt or an uncle in the house. I'm a big brother or big sister in the house. I wonder if they know what's going on. I wonder if they feel connected yet. I wonder if they have felt welcome yet. Well, I don't need to wonder because I'm going to go make sure they are. And if they've been greeted by 70,000 other people, well, now they're going to know that 70,001 people are interested in them. But you need vision first. You need the vision for the fact that we are changing the world. And then you start to think along these lines of discipleship. Here's the cool thing, right? Do you guys know... Everyone's heard of Timothy from the Bible, right? He's the recipient of the letters, 1 and 2 Timothy. Paul wrote the letters to him, and he calls him his son, his faithful son, his true son. But did you know Paul's not Timothy's dad? Awkward. Timothy had a dad who was alive. We know about it. The Bible literally tells us. Yet Paul takes him and just a couple years later starts referring to him as his own son. Not only just his own son, he says, my own son in the faith, but then one time he says, my true son. Okay, Paul. But here's the crazy thing. If I asked you who discipled Timothy, everyone, without doubt, would say Paul. But when Paul meets Timothy, 
he gets introduced to Paul as a disciple already. It's true. When you read it in Acts, it says a disciple named Timothy already in the church of Lystra. So Paul was just traveling. He comes to this church in Lystra, and they say there was a disciple there named Timothy. And then they commend him to Paul, and Paul says, well, Paul says he'd be good to travel with me, and they commend him, and he goes from there with Paul. <clears throat> what kind of insight does that give us? It gives us this insight, that he was already a disciple. And he was discipled by the church in Lystra. And the church in Lystra was a small church, maybe 10, 12, 15 families gathering together. And they made this disciple, Timothy, just for some of you who don't know, because I, listen, the, the deception that made me think everyone in the church reads their Bible was gone a long time ago. <clears throat> I've, I've referred to Moses before, and halfway through a 10-minute conversation realized they don't know who Moses is. <clears throat> Timothy is the man that Paul, the great Apostle Paul, who wrote the majority of the New Testament, hand-selected and chose to carry on his name and his work when he was gone. Left him in charge of Paul's centerpiece church in Ephesus, the church that Paul like, put so much energy and effort into and established so firmly and strongly. And then he sent Timothy there at the end of his life. And he told Timothy to make sure that he finds faithful men to pass the work on that they've done. That's who Timothy is. Timothy went on to become this person. And there was another level of discipleship on the leadership level of training and equipping for a specific mission and purpose that required a lot of maturity and insight and specific, specific, specificity. <laughs> that word. but he was already made a disciple by the church. And this is where we have to come to. If we're creating a culture, guys, a culture of discipleship in this place, if that's what we're, we're going to create, if what we're trying to make, literally for this place, to produce disciple makers, then we need to make disciples and we need to be disciples. Here's how you start. If you're someone who says, I've never been discipled, I'm not sure I know what to do. Read the scriptures about discipleship. Open up the Gospels and read them from beginning to end. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Yes, all four of them. Read it until it's indoctrinated into your head what Jesus was doing in all four of those Gospels with the people he was discipling. Watch him. Listen to what he says. Listen to how he says it. Watch what he does with them, how he treats them, how he handles them. And then ask if that has ever been an experience you've had in any way, shape, or form, by a church, by a person, by Jesus, by anything, right? Then look to the church. Are there people in the community God has put you here, in the Life Alliance Church, Crossing Life Network, all of it, right here, the whole, anyone you can get your hands on, if you feel like, hey, that's someone who makes disciples, and they've been discipled, I want to talk to them and ask them about it. What was it like? What do you think? Look at me. Ask them to give you an assessment. What are you missing? What do they think you would benefit from? What do they think you would grow from in this? From their experience. And just gather as much experience as you can. Right? Because you're hungry to find out. You want to be a disciple of Christ. 
and you want to be a disciple of the church. What we've set up here at the Crossing Life for discipleship, for church-based discipleship, if we, we've created a model that's moving. It's, 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 in, it's a train that's on the tracks and it's going. <clears throat> we have encounter weekends which is like the start of the discipleship process that you throw yourself into. You get everything you can from it. God does amazing things at these things. Then you come out and you get your butt established in a life group, which is a small church community of people who get to share life together, hold each other accountable, encourage each other, preach to each other, love each other, serve each other, be the church together. Then you sign up for first principles and you engross yourself into the first principles of Christ and his teachings in the scriptures. And you study them, and you learn them until you master them. It's a two-and-a-half-year process of life of the first principles. It is not a quick and easy thing to do, but it is a very worthwhile thing to do, and it will disciple you as a disciple of the church and of Christ. You get firmly established in that. And when you finish first principles, there is another level of Antioch that you could go on to there. Or you begin to serve and start teaching first principles and making more disciples. Or you start reproducing in life groups because you've been discipled and now you're learning it. And you're starting to see this start to manifest in your own life. Also, while you're doing this, you're getting so excited that you're getting firmly rooted and grounded in the Word of God and you're beginning to see Him. And your thoughts start to become God thoughts. And you're like, wait, is that God speaking to me? Am I starting to hear God? Am I recognizing the voice of God in my own head? And that excitement happens and you start to grow in your relationship with God where you recognize feelings He's giving you, thoughts He's put in your head that you normally would have associated with your own thoughts until you start to be able to discern between your own thoughts and the thoughts of God. Just like you need to discern between your own thoughts and the thoughts of the enemy. Right? You discern and you take the enemy's thoughts captive and you make them submit to the knowledge of Christ. And you discern when they're the thoughts of God and you take them and you embed them into your heart until they transform you into the image of Christ. This is what God wants to do with you constantly. And then when you begin to see all that happen, guess what happens? You start wanting to follow Christ closer. And you start spontaneously finding reasons to be grateful to the, to the Lord and to worship Him. And then, when you're around people who don't have that same thing, you start feeling instinctively the difference between you. And you want to help. And you want to be like Christ. And you want to make a disciple out of them. It feels so easy to talk about which is part of what's so frustrating, but I'm telling you guys, <clears throat> I have to use my own example. It's the only one I'm close and intimate with. <laughs> I got saved at 19, <clears throat> right out of college. I had, I had bad plans for college, for going back after that first semester. And I came back for the summer break, and I was into sports and playing that, and I came to the youth group. Um, it was my mom. She convinced me to come to the youth group because she said there were pretty girls there. I, it's true. That's what she said. I'm not going to lie. That is where I found my wife from that actual youth group. Just wasn't the girl she was talking about at the time. But that's all right. My mom pointed me in the general direction and I let the Lord do the rest. So I started going there and then I saw, this is what I saw, guys. 
I, saw, I grew up in this youth group from the time I was born. I grew up in this youth group. I left it at 16 because it had become really boring. All they did was talk about Bible and God and stuff. It used to be sports and then a cool little Sunday message and then sports again. Well, I came and I came into a whole youth group where all the kids were worshiping, like a full-blown worship service. I was like, what is happening? This isn't youth group. And so I sat there and I was watching and I was scanning who was the pretty girls she was talking about that were old enough at least. And I watched this worship, and what I found out, like in hindsight, I realized what was happening, is I started getting this little, little provoking of jealousy. Like, how do these kids know to do this? I grew up in the church. I watched the adults do it, and I was like, and I was, I was the best faker. I could do it. But they were doing it for real. So I was like, wow. And I came back again, and then there was one time they were all on the ground, and they were praying and they're like really praying on their knees and on their face. And so I'm like, I can't be left out, I guess. I'm supposed to be a helper. That's what Sean said. I was there to help. He's either the worst youth pastor on the planet or he's sneaky. <clears throat> right? <laughs> Let's recruit the unsaved guy who's praying on pretty girls to come be a youth group helper. He didn't know that at the time. I was still a good faker. Right? You didn't know. No. So anyway, they're praying, and I decided to get down. And I'm like, I, gotta, I can't let them think I'm not down with what's going on. I did, and so I started praying. I started crying. I'm crying in front of all these young kids. I was like, I am not lifting my face up. That's the bottom line. Until I can somehow recover, I'm not lifting my up. They all get up, and they go away. And now I look like the weirdest dude ever. I'm just alone on the ground where the circle used to be, and I'm not getting up. But what happened in that moment was it was just like God was like, okay, this is the beginning of the end. Then we went to a conference, and I went with them, and God grabbed my heart. <coughs> First, it was, a, it was a Randy Clark conference up in Vermont. I got saved, for real, had an encounter with God. That night, I went to their bookstore, and I bought two books. I bought one book. was called God's Armor Bearer. Didn't know what it was about, but it looked cool. It had sword and a shield in the front, and I liked the idea of armor bearer. I always loved David in the Old Testament, so I grabbed it. And the second book was another book on David called... A Tale of Three Kings by Gene Edwards. And it was about David with Saul and David with Absalom. <clears throat> and I read them both that night before I went to bed. Both books, beginning to end. That's crazy, right? It seems crazy, but God's Armor Bearer was like 40 pages, tiny little thin thing. Um, <clears throat> I just wanted, it to, I wanted you to think I was really impressive for at least 10 seconds or so. <clears throat> but I had to be honest. Anyway, this is what they're about. God's armor bearer was about serving the leaders God has put in your life. <clears throat> and I was like, okay, read that. That was cool. God's uh, a Tale of Three Kings was about David submitting to a brutal and vicious king named Saul and then submitting to his own rebellious son, Absalom, trusting God in both cases. So right off the bat, this foundation I get is serve God's leaders and submit even to the worst of the worst. Trust in God. I said, I'm going to do both. <clears throat> and so the next day, I was like, Sean's the youth pastor. He invited me here. This is what I'm going to do. I'm going to become an armor bearer, and I'm going to serve even if he's the worst. <clears throat> but he wasn't the worst. He invited me over his house. He invited me. To... But this is, my point is this. I began a discipleship pro pro process 
that looked like this. Sean invited me a couple times, different places, to be part and to help and serve. And I said, yes, 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 and did it. And then from that point on, all I did was pursue that dynamic. I changed my whole life. I changed my friend circles. I changed my schedule. I changed my job. I went to seminary because he said I really needed to. I went and got my computer degree because he said I really should. I had no interest in either one of those. I promise you I had no interest in either one of those. And then he's like, you should do them both. And I did them both at the same time. I was pursuing a master's degree and a technology degree at the same time. Also, I got married and was a newlywed at the same time. And I committed to it. And the discipleship relationship was at the center of it because I wanted, this was my declaration, I was going to have a better relationship with God than the Apostle Paul did. That was the goal I set early. I was excited, guys. I wanted Jesus. And I said, I am going to have a better, more intimate, more personal relationship with Jesus than the Apostle Paul did. And as I read the scriptures and I read all the books I could consume, everything pointed to discipleship and becoming a disciple. And so I gave my life to that completely. And from that developed a relationship and a real discipleship stuff. But it was through service. Guys, I'll give you one example that always stands out. My friends on a Saturday morning, I'd stayed over his house Friday night, slept over his house on his couch uh, and I was a young bachelor. I did not have the hygiene I have today. Uh, and so, like, I would work, sweat, and come back and just hang out in my work clothes. And Stephanie hated it. I ruined her couch multiple times, according to her. And so I would sleep on her couch, and she would like, you're getting your oils and everything on my couch. It's matting my couch down. So every time I was coming over, there was, like, sheets on her couch. And I was sleeping there that Friday night. The next morning, my friends, Joey and Terrence and a bunch of the guys, were coming to pick me up because we had a big tackle football game planned down in a park another city away. So they come by and they stopped at the house. Five minutes before I'm leaving to play football, Sean is like, hey, Steve, what are you doing today? You want to help me mulch my yard? I got to mulch my yard. I got a bunch of mulch just delivered. <clears throat> um... And I remember just that moment was one of those moments where it was like, that I just remember. It was a decision. I was, it was a hard decision, but I was proud of the decision. That's why I remember it. It was like, I'm proud of myself. I'm a real disciple. My friends pulled up to the front, and I went down. I told them, like, hey, guys, yeah, listen, I got to mulch. Help Sean mulch first. If you guys just hop out and help me real quick, we could get it done. And then we'll just go in a little late and play football. Joey and Terrence both, they looked at each other and then they looked at me and they were like, bro, what are you talking about right now? Like, no, all right, well, you mulch. You come meet us when you're done. And I was like, oh, it'll be over by then. There's a lot of mulch. Sean doesn't do anything small. (laughs) So I didn't go and instead I stayed and I played in the mulch all day. Now, guys, some of you are like, oh, that sounds like fun. That sounds like hell to me, though. Listen, I'm not a mulch guy. Melanie, we've owned properties for like 22 years. How many times have I ever gone out and mulched our property? No, one. I did once. The black mulch in front of the house. The bags, yes. Once. I did it once because I, I had said to Melanie, I was like, Melanie, make a list of all the things you wish I did better as a husband. And one of the things, she's like, take care of the house, take care of the cars, 
and something else. I was like, three things, that's it? She's like, that's it. You're perfect in every other way. Most of what I say is true up here, guys. And I did. So I went to Home Depot, like three trips because it wouldn't fit my car. I got black mulch all over the backseat of my car. I got these bags laid out. They get heavier and heavier with every 30 minutes that goes by. And I mulched the whole border of the house. That's it. I would rather work an extra week to pay someone to do that than do it. I hate gardening. I hate doing that. I am not the farmer. (laughs) Right? Like, I'm just not. I will do it if it needs to get done, and I'm the only person on the planet that can do it. Other than that, no. So for me to mulch with Sean, instead of going playing football with my friends, it was a huge moment in discipleship for me because I chose to do something I personally hated over doing something I personally loved for the purpose of being discipled and serving the person that God had put in my life for me to be discipled by. And that trend happened over and over and over. I could tell you a thousand stories of me sitting under a tarp in the middle of the winter with snow all around and a torpedo heater outside his house because he had to get the, the, the house bumped out so his fridge could slide back another three feet. And it was crucial. It had to be done in the middle of the snowstorm. There was no time to waste. So I'm out under a tarp passing tools under a torpedo heater just like thinking of what I'll, I could be doing with my life. That. Building stairs on his, to, to his upstairs and putting new stuff. I don't know how to do any of that. I'm literally just sitting there wasting my life hammering tools, nails, and then trying to talk to him about things I want to talk about. Life. What can you disciple me in? What, this is what's going on in my life. And, and that's, you know, it was good. It was hard. He's very easily distracted when he's focusing on working. Right? <laughs> But that was the discipleship life. And then that eventually expanded, right? And then we started, we started Youth Storm. And then that led to intra-church gatherings. And I was going with intra-church. And then I was helping him. And eventually you get to a place where you're trusted enough to minister alongside of them. And then we grew so much that we had to split. And I had to start leading my own intra-church groups that he sent me on, which I didn't want to do. I was like, no, I want to stay and minister with you. He said, but we got to expand, and you're the only one I can, I can have help me do this. So I started leading groups on my own where I grew and learned and was trained through that. And then we started an internship that he put me over, and I learned and grew and trained through that. And then we planted house churches, and I learned and grew and was trained through that. Then we planted a church here, and I learned and I grew, and I was trained through that. And it's on and on. It's a lifelong discipleship process of learning how to be like Christ and to serve the church. Now, the challenge for me has been Sean sets a benchmark that's too high for me. (laughs) In the areas that he is really strong in, I'm not. And I spent a long time in my life to learn how to preach shorter, which I'm not good at yet. Your wife beat you to it. So, to sum up... (laughs) Um, what I've recognized was this. You will grow and you will mature in that. But here's the bottom line. We need this discipleship mindset and heart. And if you've never been discipled, you need to be discipled. There's no way around it. It doesn't mean like you're 60 years old. You've never been discipled. So you start back in like training. No, you are a 60-year-old mature human being that's been walking with God. 
But there might be some areas that you can grow in in these certain areas that someone is strong in. Maybe there's a paradigm that you just never got because you weren't discipled. But it's here, and it starts with the church. You commit to the church and the purpose of the church and its mission, and that's where we grow. Make sense? We'll teach more on this and preach more on this. But if you have any questions, obviously find us and ask us. Oh, man, I'm being cut off. Oh, no, no, I'm not. I'm just telling you that Steve, I asked him yesterday to preach, and he's like, well, I can't hardly talk because I just like have this stuff going on in my throat and stuff and then I start choking and then I can't even talk. So he said, I can't tell you until the morning. And so I called him at eight and said, do I have to go downstairs and have something ready? Because this is something that's a shared message. And he's like, well, I don't know. I mean, I don't feel good. I don't feel good at all. But anyway, I said, well, preach as long as you can and I'll be here for backup. If you can't talk anymore because you're hacking and coughing and stuff, I'll come up and finish. And I said, maybe this will be the first time Steve Arsenal preaches for only 20, 30 minutes. <laughs> so, so I think he preached longer than he's ever preached. He preached like an hour, like, and almost two hours. No, it's because it's your wife made me this witch brew or whatever that magically magically healed me she literally they literally made some concoction of tea and was like this will sustain you long enough to go so I drank some and man look at that (laughs) seriously though um, it's just it's true listen if you give me a week to preach it'll be a 30 minute message if you give me shorter than that it might be longer I don't know it's just off the top of my head but um In all seriousness, guys, the beginning of this charge, of this message, started with Jesus' message in Luke 14 about what it means to be his disciple. What has to change? Everything. So please don't leave this thinking like, oh, I got to sign up for their discipleship program. I got to make sure I get to that encounter and do my first principles so I can be a good disciple. That is not it. You need to first reconcile with Luke 14 before you do anything. You need to first recognize and say, is my life going to be disrupted in such a way that my affectionate commitment is going to shift to Jesus above all else, above my career plans, above my business plans, above my family plans, above my life plans, and will I genuinely give my entire life to the mission as if we just went to war and I had been drafted? Will you do that? Can you reconcile? When you do that, if your answer is a yes, when you read Luke 14 and you wrestle with that and you say, the answer is yes, Lord, then your next thing has to be, Lord, where do you want me? Where am I being posted? And who is the captain of that unit that I need to go give myself to? Do you understand? Please don't start by thinking God's going to call you to be a general right now in this moment because you're finally surrendering your life to him. That's not how it works. He's going to ask you to serve. He's going to ask you to get in line. He's going to ask you to join his mission. And who knows? It may take you 50 years or five minutes for him to promote you. I don't know. But I can tell you this. If you ask him, where am I posted? And who is the captain of where I'm being posted at? He's going to lead you. He's going to tell you. But if you show up thinking you can just show up and not, and just, just not submit to that process and not submit to this discipleship commitment... I don't know what to tell you. We disagree. 
So this is what I want to pray right now while we're here. Let's just stand up real quick. We'll close because sometimes church goes long. I don't know what to tell you. Let's pray. Let's pray that Jesus will literally give you the grace to embrace the disruption that he wants to bring in your life. That he will give you the grace that allows you to embrace this. God, you ask us of hard things. You ask us to to embrace hard things. You ask us to do hard things. But you have given us the grace to do those hard things. You have given us the grace to embrace those things, to say yes in the face of overwhelming odds, emotional, pressure building, financial struggles. God, you have given us the, the grace to say yes. God, that we'd be able to respond like Paul did and say that whether we have abundance or lack, we have everything we need to accomplish what you've asked of us. God, shift our priorities. Right now, in this moment, shift them that they continue to shift, even through the holidays, even into the new year, God. That we would celebrate Christmas differently as a result of you disrupting our lives. That we would do family differently as a result of you disrupting our lives. That we would do work. We do business. We do friendships. We do everything differently, God, because we've been disrupted in the best way possible. And that, God, you would recruit many disciples to your cause today. That you would convert many, many followers into disciples now in this moment, God. That your church would expand from this point forward and many disciples would be made. We thank you, God. We thank you for who you are. We thank you that you're doing this, God. 